0: Recorded
1: live.
0: Hello, this is William Fink and this is Christy Genny at Internet Radio. Today is Friday, January second, two thousand and fifteen. We will continue with our presentation of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. This is part fourteen and it's subtitled, Inspiration and the Kingdom of God. In Romans chapter 4, Paul discussed the certainty of the promise of the faith to the seed of Abraham, to those nations which had indeed sprung from the loins of Abraham. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul identified the nations round about the Corinthians, those nations which were all practicing pagan idolatry as Israel according to the flesh. Paul had told the Romans in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham was their forefather. Likewise, had Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that their own ancestors were with Moses in the Exodus, ascertaining, that they were also Israelites. An investigation of ancient history proves the veracity of these statements and presenting 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we exposited some of that historical verification. The Romans and the Corinthians were from just two of those nations which had actually descended from the literal seed of Abraham through Jacob Israel and Paul brought them the gospel in demonstration of the truth of the word of Yahweh that, as he says, the promise might be sure to all the seed. Therefore, with Paul having himself attested to all of these things, the balance of his epistle as well as all of his writings must be understood within that contextual framework which Paul himself has provided. To attempt to apply Paul's statement so as to include anyone who was not originally in the promises of God, which are found in the Old Testament, is to pervert the message of Paul and is also an attempt to defraud God himself. Paul defined his ministry to the nations as a ministry of reconciliation, meaning the reconciliation of Israel to God. As Paul himself defined Israel as 12 tribes, and as those very nations of the seed of Abraham, according to the flesh. As Christ himself said, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presses into it. Yet every man if we want to count for men, the creatures which are commonly counted by the world today as man, yet every man does not have a part in it. Otherwise, men wouldn't have to press into it. They would simply declare Jesus and be saved. But Christ came only for the lost sheep, of the house of Israel with that in mind with that contextual framework in mind we will commence with 1 Corinthians chapter 12 now concerning the things of the spirit brethren I do not wish that you be ignorant (laughs) excuse me you know that you were once a people being Taken away with yourselves, as you had been taken away to dumb idols. Now that Greek word ethnos, Strong's 1484, is properly a nation. But here it is translated as people although that should not be interpreted as detracting or diverging from the meaning of the word since a nation is, properly, a homogenous people. Like many lexicons, the Liddell and Scott Greek-English Lexicon is an excellent resource. And in particular, it was the standard reference for ancient Greek in English for many decades after it was first published. But it also followed established religion in the understanding of the many words used in the New Testament. That is the failure of many lexicons, even those such as Liddell and Scott, which are not generally sectarian. In their purpose therefore from the time of Homer they attest in their definition for ethnos that the word means a nation people a people right among other related things but then they claim that it also means in the New Testament ta ethne the nations Gentiles i.e., or for example, all but Jews and Christians. And that is a lie. And that is how most New Testament lexicons, the Dell and Scott is not a New Testament lexicon, but they included in their definitions the manner in which the New Testament translated words which appear there. And they took it for granted that that is how the words were used in the New Testament. They took the legitimacy of the King James translation for granted. Liddell and Scott did an excellent work where they followed secular and common Greek writers to understand the language. But being 19th century Englishmen, and where they follow the Anglican church policy in defining certain words, they like all other modern Greek lexicographers have derailed themselves. If the word ethnos is ever in scripture applied to Christians or Jews, then it cannot possibly bear the meaning of non-Jew or non-Christian, as Liddell and Scott claim that it means "in the New Testament, not in real Greek, but in church Greek. In Acts chapter 24:17, and in Acts chapter 28:19, Paul refers to Judea as my ethnos. So is that my Gentiles? In Acts chapter 26, 4, he calls it my own ethnos. Is that my own Gentiles? Here we see that Paul also refers to Corinthian Christians as an ethnos. So the word can't apply to merely non Jewish or non-Christian nations, and that definition is a complete farce. It's a lie. In his first epistle, the Apostle Peter called the Christians of Anatolia to whom he had written a holy ethnos. So how does Liddell and Scott claim that the word applies to nations other than Christians? or Jews, If Paul applies it three times to Judea, and Paul and Peter apply it to Christians. Complete disconnect between all the Greek-English lexicons and the New Testament, where they just followed church lies to uphold that farce called the King James Bible. In his first epistle, I'm sorry, in the Revelation, they which are saved are described not merely as individuals, but as ta ethne, the nations. In Revelation chapter 21, where it mentions the nations of them which are saved, and it doesn't say a thing about Jews. If the King James Version were honestly translated, then it would have Paul saying in Romans 4.18 that Abraham was to become the father of many Gentiles. According to the promise, so shall thy seed be. And as Paul explains, it is to these particular Gentiles, or nations, which are the twelve tribes of Israel, according to the flesh, as he said in chapter 10 here, That the promises of God are intended. Excuse me. So Christians are defined by nations, in Peter, in Paul, in the Revelation. That is how Paul used the term in relation to the promises to the fathers. And the churches are interpreting the entire scripture out of context, corrupting Paul and defrauding God. Therefore, we see that religious definitions, even in a lexicon as scholarly as Lidell and Scott, the religious definitions should also be challenged. The Corinthians were at one time a nation or a people taken away to dumb idols. But in order to be taken away in such a manner, they must have originally been Israelites in the community of God. That was the entire purpose of Paul's explanation in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where he asserted to these Corinthians that their ancestors were Israelites with Moses in the Exodus. As the word of God says of Israel in Ezekiel chapter 16, Wherefore, O harlot, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus saith Yahweh God, because thy filthiness was poured out and thy nakedness discovered through thy whoredoms with thy lovers and with all the idols of thy abominations and by the blood of thy children which thou didst give unto them, behold, therefore I will gather All thy lovers with whom thou hast taken pleasure, and all them that thou hast loved, and with all them that thou hast hated. I will even gather them round about against thee, and will discover thy nakedness unto them, that they may see all thy nakedness. And this reveals that the lovers of the ancient Israelites were not only the idols of the other nations, but the people of the other nations as well. And I will judge thee as women that break wedlock and shed blood are judged. And I will give thee blood in fury and jealousy, and I will also give thee into their hand, and they shall throw down thine eminent place, and shall break down thy high places, and this is speaking of the Assyrians and later Babylonians who destroyed ancient Israel, they shall strip thee also of thy clothes, and shall take thy fair jewels, and leave thee naked and bare, just like in the Revelation. The woman who joins herself to the beast will be left stripped bare and naked. These words in Ezekiel, I'm sorry, the revelation shows that history repeats itself because people don't learn these lessons. These words in Ezekiel are representative of the judgment of both Israel and Judah. I'm sorry, I have a slight cough. But Hosea, speaking of the same punishment in chapter 2 of his prophecy, also speaks of the reconciliation of Israel to Yahweh. Where it says, Say ye unto your brethren, Ami, and unto your sisters, Ruhamah, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her, therefore, put away her whoredoms out of her sight, and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked, and set her as in a day that she was born, and make her as a wilderness, and set her in a dry land, and slay her with thirst. And I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms. For their mother has played the harlot. She did conceive them as done shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers, these people of the surrounding nations, that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall, that she shall not find her paths. And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband. For then was it better with me than now. For she did not know that I, Yahweh God, is Israel's first husband." Gave her corn, and wine, and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Therefore will I return, and take away my corn in the time thereof, and my wine in the season thereof, and will recover my wool and my flax, to given to cover her nakedness. And now will I discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, the non-Israel nations." and none shall deliver her out of my hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, and her sabbaths, all her solemn feasts. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, whereof she said, These are my rewards that my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them and I will visit upon her the days of Baleen, where she burned incense to them. She even decked herself with her earrings and her jewels, and she went after her lovers, and forgot me, saith Yahweh. And now the part that's pertinent to the New Testament. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness, and speak comfortably unto her. And I will give her vineyards from thence, and a valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there, as in the days of her youth, and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be at that day, saith Yahweh, that thou shalt. Call me Ishi, my husband. And shall no more call me Bali, my lord. For I will take away the names of Baleen out of her mouth, and they shall be remembered no more by their name. If the Corinthians, as Paul explains here, were once a nation, taken away with themselves as they had been taken away to dumb idols, then they must have been one of the nations descended from the children of Israel according to the promises to Abraham, who would be reconciled to Yahweh in Christ according to the words of the prophets. That is the context of the entire scripture from Genesis all the way through to the Revelation. And Paul is teaching the fulfillment of the words of these prophets in regard to the ancient children of Israel. The pleading of Yahweh with Israel was conducted through the gospel. And the names of the idols, the names of Baalim, were removed from the mouths of Israel in their turning to Christ. Paul says in verse 3, and this one's going to take some time to understand, but we will. Therefore, I explain to you that no one speaking in the spirit of Yahweh says, accursed is Yahshua. And no one is able to say, Prince Yahshua or Lord Jesus, except by the Holy Spirit. The Codex Claromontanus, in the majority text had the words for Prince Joshua in the accusative case here rather than the nominative case. So it may be written, and no one is able to address Prince Joshua except in the Holy Spirit. That may well represent a loss of the historical context of this passage even by the 5th century A.D., at least in the Codex Claro-Montanus, the 6th century, but that one is related to the Codex Beze and probably dates older than the 6th century, probably to the 5th. Paul is teaching that which John had taught in his first epistle from 1 John chapter 2, little children, it is the last hour, And just as you have heard that the Antichrist comes, even now many Antichrists have been born, from which we know it is the last hour. They came out from us, those Edomite Jews, but they were not from of us. For if they were from of us, they would have abided with us, but so that they would be made manifest that they are not that they are all not from of us. Yet you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because any lie is not from of the truth. Who is a liar if not he denying that Yahshua is the Christ? He is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son, Each denying the Son has not the Father either. He being in agreement with the Son also has the Father. That which you have heard from the beginning must abide in you. If that which you have heard from the beginning should abide in you, you also shall abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise which he promised to us, eternal life. There are some who would abuse this passage with the claim that it supports universalism. That if the non-Israel races profess Christ, that they may somehow be Christians. Yet even Balaam's ass was used to reproach the soothsayer. And even the Gospel shows that there were evil spirits which recognized Christ as the Son of God and admitted his authority over them, which we see, for instance, in Luke chapter 8, from verse 26. And they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee, the apostles on board a fishing boat. And And when he went forth to the land, there met him out of the city a certain man, which had devils a long time, and wore no clothes, neither abode in any house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, and fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high? I beseech thee, torment me not, For he had commanded, for Christ had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For oftentimes it had caught him, and he was kept bound with chains and in fetters. And he broke the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness, the devil being a demon, an unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion because many devils were entered into him. So the apostle James explained in his own epistle that even the devils knew there was one God, and they trembled, but the devils are not going to be saved. But if later on in history, certain devils or brute beasts are taught to recognize that Jesus is God or that Jesus is come in the flesh. That has no bearing on the words of Paul or John when they were spoken in the first century. Paul and John were describing the people of their world, the Adamic oikumene of their time, and their words were not meant to be removed from that historical context and reapplied to some future event or some future person far removed. The proof of this is in the words of Christ who is recorded as having said in Matthew 7 that not everyone that says, speaking of the future, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? So they must have been true believers. And in thy name have cast out devils? So they must have been true believers. (coughs) And in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me ye that work iniquity. Therefore, the words of Christ indicate that in that day, some future time, referring to his second advent, the circumstances would change, and that there would be people who were professing his name whom he did not know and whom he would reject for that reason. These people appear to be true believers, themselves even casting out devils and prophesying. In his name. Yet ostensibly they were rejected simply because he did not know them. They could not have been Israelites. It is Israel alone whom God takes credit for knowing in Amos chapter three, where the Word of God says to Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. So if people profess Christ today, that doesn't fit into this historical context of Paul's statements here in verse three. And now because this really shows that Christians who take passages of scripture out of their historical context are indeed deceiving themselves. They are only clowns when they do that. Now, we will see the true historical context of Paul's words here. Therefore, I explain to you that no one speaking in the spirit of Yahweh says, accursed is Yahshua, or accursed is Jesus. And no one is able to say Lord Jesus, or Prince Joshua, or Jesus is Lord, as the King James has it, except by the Holy Spirit. To truly understand what Paul must have been referring to,
1: As Paul himself
0: had already mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that Christians were indeed undergoing a period of persecution at this time, where he says, because of the present violence. We shall quote at length from a near contemporary source to Paul, 50 years later, the epistle of Pliny to the emperor Tryon. I know I butcher this name the way the mainstream, um, what, whatever you want to call them, historical commentators, the dictionaries, they pronounce it Trajan. And, and that's really a slap in the face to the original Roman. Trajan, his name is really Tryon. The epistle of Pliny to the emperor Tryon which dates to about 112 A.D. There, it is seen that Christianity was a crime, as it had been also in the days of Claudius and Nero, and that those accused of Christianity were compelled to curse Christ and to worship an image of the emperor. And if they didn't, then they face severe and even capital punishment. Pliny the Younger was governor of Pontus and Bithynia, which were districts of Anatolia along the southern coast of the Black Sea. From 111 to 113 A.D., about 50 years after Paul was in Corinth. There has survived to us a collection of his letters with the emperor Trajan, or Trajan, while several sources for the text are available. Here the letter is presented from a translation by William Whiston, found in his Dissertation three, one of the appendices to his translation of the works of Flavius Josephus, and Pliny wrote to the Emperor, Sir, it is my constant method to apply myself to you for the resolution of all my doubts, for who can better govern my dilatory way of proceeding or instruct my ignorance? I have never been present at the examination of Christians, meaning by others, on which account I am unacquainted with what uses to be inquired into and what, and how, how far they used to be punished, he's talking about, in the past. Nor are my doubts small whether there be not a distinction to be made between the ages, meaning the ages the accused, and whether tender youth ought to have the same punishment with strong men, whether there be not room for pardon upon repentance, or whether it may be not be an advantage to one that had been a Christian that he has forsaken Christianity, whether the bare name without any crimes besides or the crimes adhering to that name be to be punished. In the meantime, I have taken this course about those who have been brought before me as Christians. I asked them whether they were Christians or not. If they confessed that they were Christians, I asked them again, and a third time, intermixing threatenings with the questions, if they persevered in their confession, I ordered them to be executed. For I did not doubt, but let their confession be of any sort whatsoever. This positiveness and inflexible obstinacy on the part of the Christians, deserved to be punished. There had been some of this mad sect, whom I took notice of, in particular as Roman citizens, that they might be sent to that city for appeal, as Paul also appealed to Caesar. After some time, as is usual in such examinations, the crime spread itself, and many more cases came before me, A libel was sent to me, though without an author, in other words, some anonymous snitch, containing many of the names of persons accused. These denied that they were Christians now, or ever had been. They called upon the gods. Now the important parts coming up. This is what Pliny's saying that he took his recourse against these Christians and forced them to do whether they were Christians or pagans. If they continued to admit or profess Christ, they were executed. If they didn't, he had them do these these next steps. He had them call behind call upon the Roman gods and, and cursed Christ and bowed themselves to the image of the emperor. And Pliny describes it by saying, these denied that they were Christians now or ever had been. They called upon the gods and supplicated to your Image, which I caused to be brought to me for that purpose with frankincense and wine for oblations. They also cursed Christ, none of which things, it is said, can any of those that are ready Christians be compelled to do. So I thought fit to let them go. So you profess. Christ, and you're executed. You deny Christ, curse Christ, sacrifice to Caesar, and call upon the gods of the Romans, and they let you go. It must be kept in mind that not all of dispersed Israel had yet heard the gospel or heard enough of it to find it credible, so there's probably going to be a lot of wishy-washy dispersed Israelites among those who denied and cursed Christ. Pliny goes on to say that others of them that were named in the libel said they were Christians, but presently denied it again. That indeed they had been Christians, but had ceased to be so, some three years, some many more. And one said, One day it was said that he had not been so these twenty years. All these worshipped your image, and the images of our gods, these also cursed Christ. However, they assured me that the main of their fault or of their mistake was this, that they were wont on a stated day to meet together before it was light and to sing a hymn to Christ as to a god. Alternately, and to oblige themselves by a sacrament or oath. Not to do the word for sacrament. There could also be a word for oath, right? So it's probably to oblige themselves by an oath. Not to do anything that was ill, but that they would commit no theft or pilfering or adultery, that they would not break their promises or deny what was deposited with them when it was required back again, after which it was their custom to depart and to meet again at a common but innocent meal, which they had left off upon that edict which I published at your command, and wherein I had forbidden any such conventicles. These examinations made me think it necessary to inquire by torments what the truth was, which I did of two servant maids who were called deaconesses, and Wiston certainly translated that word deaconesses from a feminine form of the word for minister. But I still discovered no more than that they were addicted to a bad and to an extravagant superstition. Hereupon, I have put off any further examinations and have recourse to you. For the affair seems to be well worth consultation. Now, this following is important also in the greater historical perspective of the spread of Christianity. Especially on account of the number of those that are in danger, meaning are in danger of this inquisition and of being executed if they steadfastly profess Christ. For there are many of every age, of every rank, and of both sexes who are now and hereafter likely to be called to account And to be in danger for this superstition, Christianity, is spread like a contagion, not only into cities and towns, but into country villages also, which yet there is reason to hope may be stopped and corrected. To be sure, the temples, which were almost forsaken, begin already to be frequented. Pliny is trying to tell the emperor that he's ebbing the, stem of, the, the, the tide of Christianity. He's stemming the tide of Christianity in Pontus and Bithynia, so he's bragging a little. To be sure, the temples, which were almost forsaken, begin already to be frequented. And the holy solemnities, which were long intermitted, began to be revived, the pagan rituals. The sacrifices began to sell well everywhere. Of course, paganism was also tied to commerce. Of which, very few purchasers had of late appeared, imagine no Americans going to a football game. The Jews would be crying. Whereby it is easy to suppose how great a multitude of men may be amended if place for repentance be admitted, meaning if place for these people to deny Christ under threat of execution be allowed. Trajans or Trajans or Tryons. Brief reply to Pliny has also been preserved and was translated by wisdom. And it's only five or six lines. My Pliny, you have taken the method which you ought in examining the causes of those that had been accused as Christians. For indeed, no certain and general form of judging can be ordained in this case. These people are not to be sought for. In other words, they're not to send out search parties looking for Christians in every community. But if they be accused and convicted, they are to be punished. But with caution, with this caution, that he who denies himself to be a Christian and makes it plain, That he is not so by supplicating to our gods, although he had been so formerly, may be allowed pardon upon his repentance. As for libel, sent without an author, the anonymous snitches, they ought to have no place in any accusation whatsoever, for that would be a thing of very ill example. So Trajan was more just than the United States government, and not agreeable to my reign. So we see that in the letter of Pliny, Christians were brought on trial before the Roman authorities, the Roman governors, and they were forced to curse Christ, as well as to supplicate to the emperor and to the pagan gods of Rome. This was from the Epistles of Pliny, Book 10, number 96. While it is not explicitly recorded in history, Pliny the Younger is believed to have suddenly died in Pontus Bithynia in 113 AD, soon after this exchange of letters. In Paul's time as well, When men referred to Yahshua Christ as their kurios, as their Lord, it was interpreted as an act of treason against Rome, and they were exposing themselves to execution by the Roman government. Supplicating to Caesar and the gods of Rome, you are submitting yourself to Caesar and Rome calling Christ the Lord or the King, you're denying Caesar in Rome. In Acts chapter 16, in Philippi, we see the complaint against Paul and Silas by certain men who declared, these men, being Judeans, do not exceedingly trouble our city, and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. So Paul said, no one is able to say Prince Joshua or Lord Jesus except by the Holy Spirit, those who love the world, or who loved their lives more than they loved God, or even those who were simply not well-established in the faith, would pronounce Christ accursed for the benefit of their Roman inquisitors. So Paul attested that no one speaking in the Spirit of God says, accursed is Joshua or accursed is Jesus These words of Paul's cannot be understood or applied outside of their original historical context.
1: Paul himself
0: was later put to death by Nero for that same profession, and in a similar trial. The non-Israelite aliens who profess Christ today are doing so without risk of persecution. By professing Christ, the aliens receive rewards from Christian society in this life, and then they are given further hope for a reward that they were never promised by he who could actually dispense it, by Yahweh himself. Profess Jesus and you'll be saved. No, Yahweh only promised that to the children of Israel and to no one else. The aliens are professing a Christ whom they do not know and who does not know them as Christ himself has foretold. Christ will deny them as he himself has professed. The aliens, as well as the universalist Christians, having formed a Christ in their own image, are actually worshiping an idol and not the Christ of the Scripture. Verse 4. Now, there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are diversities of services, and the same prince. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God who operates all things in all. Notice that Paul did not say that there are diversities of people. Rather, there are diversities of dips among the people of God. However, there are constant disputes concerning the word all in Scripture. Some people love to say that all means all, and it doesn't mean anything else. The word all, whenever it appears in any writing, must be understood in context. If a rancher wrote a letter about cattle and declared that all the males on the ranch were to be slaughtered, he sure as hell isn't talking about the cowboys. If all the females are to be sold, one cannot assume that the intended slaughter may include rooster or rams, or that the females being sold would include sheep or goats, because the rancher wrote a letter about cattle. But if one insists that all means any all other than Israel, all of Israel, since only Israelites are being addressed in the scripture, if one wants to insist that all means all other than Israel, then one must consider Jeremiah chapter 30, where the word of God says, Therefore fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, saith Yahweh, Neither be dismayed, O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee, though I make a full land of all nations, Whither I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. Very similar words are repeated in Jeremiah chapter 46. Certainly, all may mean all, if you insist. But of men and nations, only those of Israel, All of Israel are relevant to the scripture and promises of God. Why? Because God said, if all means all, and you want to insist upon that, God said, I will make a full land of all nations where I have scattered thee. So wherever Israel was scattered, which according to Christ was the east, the north, the west, the south, (laughs) no plot of land, unturned all the way to, according to Christ, the ends of the earth. So if all means all, that's fine, we'll accept that. But after Yahweh makes a full land of all the nations where Israel was scattered, we're only left with all of Israel. That's what all means in the New Testament according to the promises of God. So those people that insisted all means all, they better go read Jeremiah 30 and understand what all really means. Beginning from around chapter 25 of the book of Exodus, and almost to the end of the book, chapter 38 out of 40, maybe, among other things. There are many detailed instructions to Moses concerning the construction of the tabernacle of the wilderness and the manufacture of the implements and the adornment of the priest of that tabernacle. In Exodus chapter 31 we read, And Yahweh spoke unto Moses, saying, See, I have called by thy name Bezaliel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship to devise cunning works, to work in gold and in silver and in brass and in cutting of stones to set them and in carving of timber to work in all manner of workmanship. And I, behold, I have given him with Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan, and in the hearts of all that are wise, wise hearted, have I put wisdom, that they may make all that I have commanded thee. Then further on, in Exodus chapter 35, we read from verse 29, the children of Israel brought a willing offering unto Yahweh, every man and woman whose heart made them willing to bring for all manner of work which Yahweh had commanded to be made by the hand of Moses. And Moses said unto the children of Israel, See, Yahweh has called by name. Bezaliel the son of Uri the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah and he has filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship and to devise curious works to work in gold and in silver and in brass and in the cutting of stones to set them and in carving of wood to make any manner of cunning work and he has put in his heart that he may teach both he and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamak, of the tribe of Dan. Them has he filled with wisdom of heart to work all manner of work, of the engraver, and of the cunning workman, and of the embroiderer, in blue and in purple, in scarlet, and in fine linen, and of the weaver, even of them that do any work, and of those that devise cunning work. In the Exodus account, it is apparent that building the tabernacle of Yahweh in the wilderness, certain of the children of Israel were inspired by the spirit of Yahweh to be chief architects and teachers among the artificers. And many others of the children of Israel were inspired with the appropriate gifts to actually execute the work required for the building. Few men can be masters of many trades. The adornment of the ancient kingdom, so as to announce its manifestation in Israel to the rest of the world, required carpenters and smiths and weavers and all sorts of other skills among the people. The ancient kingdom of Israel was built for appearance as an affront to the surrounding nations. Therefore, the appropriate inspiration was imparted by the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish its manifestation. But the kingdom of Christ is not by appearance in that sense, and instead, the inspiration of Yahweh is imparted to men for different reasons. That the kingdom would manifest itself within the greater Adamic society. For that reason, Christ told the Pharisees that the kingdom of God is among you in Luke seventeen twenty-one, Those true Israelites among the greater population who were destined to accept Christ and carry that kingdom forward would indeed be inspired with the appropriate gifts for the building of his kingdom. So the apostles were not artificers in gold and silver, because the kingdom of Christ would have a different way of manifesting itself than the kingdom of Yahweh in the time of Moses. Verse 7, And to each is given manifestation of the Spirit towards that which is advantageous, while to one, through the Spirit, a word of wisdom is given Then to another, a word of knowledge down through the same spirit. And to another, faith in the same spirit. And to another, gifts of the means of healing in the same spirit. And to another, operations of power. And to another, interpretation of prophecy. And to another, dissolution of spirits. And we'll talk about that word at length. And to another sorts of languages, and to another interpretation of languages, the Greek word. Di- <coughs>
1: I'm
0: sorry, the Greek word diacresis is dissolution here, Strong's number twelve fifty-three, and in the King James version, it is discerning. The word is a noun from the same component word as the verb, diacrino, and it is defined as meaning separation, dissolution, decision, or judgment by Liddell and Scott. This is being mentioned here to further illustrate the use of the verb, the equivalent verb, in 1 Corinthians 11.31, which the King James Version very wrongly rendered as judge. Paul actually said at 1 Corinthians 11.31, that if then we had made a distinction of ourselves, which can also be understood to mean that if Israelites had discerned themselves, perhaps we would not be judged. The word dissolution may be a difficult choice here. However, it was chosen because it primarily means the resolution or separation of something into component parts or the act or process of resolving or dissolving something into parts or elements. Paul is not necessarily referring to ghostly spirits, to demons. Rather, he is talking about embodied spirits. (laughs) Just as the Apostle John was also talking about embodied spirits in chapter 4 of his first epistle. There, John warned his readers to believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Being able to discern spirits doesn't mean watching for ghosts. Being able to discern spirits, one must be able to perceive The component parts of their rhetoric, their professions, and their assertions, and measure those parts against the scripture, that's the discerning of spirits. From there, one must be able to estimate their agendas and why they are not truthful according to the word of God. That is why I chose the word dissolution as a translation of diacresis here. Of course, some Christians are better and faster at determining evil spirits than others, and that, we see here, is a gift from God. Verse 11, but all these things, one and the same spirit operates, dividing personally to each just as he wills, meaning just as God wills. Ancient Rome, as well as ancient Greece, had multitudes of competing philosophies, which were all essentially religions. A religion is a belief system after which people regulate their daily lives. These ancient philosophies were in addition to the ancient worship of the pagan deities. Furthermore, in addition to these, there was the compulsory worship of the emperor, which we have seen described in a letter of Pliny to the emperor. If the children of Israel were to be reconciled to Yahweh their God, and if the pagan idols and all of the immoral practices which accompanied paganism were to be done away with, then Christianity had a world of obstacles which it had to overcome. By the time that the epistle to Pliny was written, circa 112 A.D., or about 80 years after the passion and resurrection of Christ, there were so many Christians in Pontus and Bithynia that Pliny actually feared for the number of people whom he would have to execute in order to suppress the new creed. And that's only in Pontus and Bithynia. It is not an easy thing to get such masses of people to change their religion, to abandon the beliefs they were raised with in so short a time. Therefore, the gifts which Paul speaks of here, which were imparted to Christians by the Holy Spirit, must have been readily manifest in the eyes of the people, for so many of them to be persuaded that Christianity was indeed the way, and that therefore they should abandon their old paths. Accepting this profession, in addition to abandoning whatever sort of paganism it was in which they were raised, they risked death at the hands of the government, the testament to the truth in Christ, and the accounts of the Acts of the Apostles is that not only were so many people so rapidly converted to Christianity, but that so many of them had been willing to die on behalf of this new profession, steadfastly proclaiming
1: that Jesus is Lord in defiance
0: of the almighty empire. This history is unquestionable by anybody with any sense whatsoever. Maybe the Jews could contend with it. The letter to Pliny, I've never seen it contested. It's authenticity. Actually, there's on an entire collect. I'm sorry, the letters of Pliny Actually, there's an entire collection of the letters of Pliny which are available because Pliny kept his correspondence and intended to publish them as a book. That was his purpose. And that correspondence is um, very insightful in many ways into the life of a late, 1st century, early 2nd century B.C. Roman statesman. In fact, his uncle, Pliny the Elder, had um, been killed in the eruption of Vesuvius. Pliny the Elder went to Vesuvius because of his scientific curiosity and did not return. And Pliny the Younger recorded that. So. and and describe the eruption. There's many important things in the little letters to Pliny, but we see
1: his description
0: of the spread of Christianity is most important to an understanding of the truth, of the gifts of Christians, and, and, and the 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 efficacy, the effect that the gospel and the Holy Spirit had on the world at the time of the apostles. And we see insight into the meaning of Paul's statements here, without doubt. Those statements cannot be removed from this historical context. It's totally fraudulent to attempt to do so. Verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, being many, are one body, so also the anointed. For also in one spirit all we into one body had been immersed, whether Judeans or Greeks, whether bondmen or freemen, and all one spirit have been
1: watered.
0: Christ himself, is not each and every Israelite. Therefore, the word Christos in verse 12 cannot refer to Christ, but rather it is used collectively of the people of Israel who are called in Christ, who form his body in the world. Therefore, Christian Israelites are collectively the anointed, There are many other passages in Paul's epistles which reflect his use of the term in this manner. Those passages are the subject of a paper available at Christoginia under the title, Yahweh's Anointed, the Children of Israel. I won't go into it in this presentation tonight. In verse 13, Paul seems to be using allegories to describe the physical and spiritual aspects of the children of Yahweh in the world, which are reminiscent of the words of Christ in John chapter 3, where he said, speaking to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, if one should not be born from water and spirit, he is not able to enter into the kingdom of Yahweh. That which is born from of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. You should not wonder that I said to you that it is necessary for you to be born from above. The one body of which Paul speaks are the collective body of the children of Israel. This is the same body to which Paul refers in chapter 11 where he says that those who eat and drink unworthily condemn themselves and that if that body had distinguished itself, then perhaps it would not be judged. Evidently, the members of the body of Christ, which are the collective children of Israel, distinguishing themselves from non-Israelites, would therefore be blessed by God. The Judeans, of which Paul speaks here must be Israelites, those whom Paul identifies in Romans chapter 9 as his kinsmen according to the flesh. It must be kept in mind that in that same place, Paul also informed us that not all of the Judeans were Israelites, but that many of them were the accursed Edomites, who are the ancestors of today's Jews. Likewise, the Greeks of which Paul speaks here must be Israelites, those whom he identifies in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as Israel according to the flesh, the nations taken away into paganism, which he also addresses here in the opening of this very chapter. They also had among them some of the accursed Canaanites and Edomites, as well as others of the Adamic tribe the story of the punishment and reconciliation of Israel is told in many places in the Old Testament prophets. Here we shall present and discuss it to some extent from Ezekiel chapter 20. Of course, we won't present the entire chapter, but a good portion of it from verse 18. But I said, speaking of the children of Israel in the Exodus, Yahweh said, But I said unto their children in the wilderness, walking not in the statutes of your fathers, neither observe their judgments, nor defile yourselves with idols. I am Yahweh your God. Walk in my statutes, and keep my judgments, and do them, and hallow my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am Yahweh your God. Notwithstanding, the children rebelled against me. They walked not in my statutes, neither kept my judgments to do them, which if a man do, he shall even live in them, which I would translate have life by them. They polluted my Sabbaths. Then I said, I would pour out my fury upon them to accomplish mine anger against them in the wilderness. Nevertheless, I withdrew my hand and wrought for my name's sake that it should not be polluted in the sight of the heathen, in whose sight I brought them forth, the other nations which observed the children of Israel depart from Egypt." I lifted up my hand unto them also in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the heathen and disperse them through the countries because they had not executed my judgments but had despised my statutes and had polluted my Sabbaths and their eyes were after their father's idols. And here it is evident that the scattering of Israel actually began with the time of the Exodus, not with the time of the Assyrians. That was the culmination of the scattering of Israel, the time of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. The beginning of it was in the Exodus. There is historical and scriptural evidence linking early nations of Europe to the children of Israel. And among those nations are both the Romans and the Dorian Greeks. Wherefore, I gave them also statutes that were not good, and judgments whereby they should not live. Many of the Old Testament laws were purposely, as Paul says in Colossians, were purposely contrary to to Israel as a punishment from God and I polluted them in their own gifts in that they caused to pass through the fire all that opened a womb that I might make them desolate to the end that they might know that I am Yahweh Israel was further punished by paganism for turning to paganism therefore son of man Speak unto the house of Israel and say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh God, Yet in this your fathers have blasphemed me in that they have committed a trespass against me. For when I had brought them into the land, for the which I lifted up my hand to give to them, then they saw every high hill and all the thick trees and they offered there their sacrifices, and there they presented the provocation of their offering, and there also made their sweet savor and poured out their their drink offerings, their oblations, like we see the Romans have oblations to their pagan gods. Then I said unto them, what is the high place whereunto ye go? And the name thereof is called Bama unto this day. Wherefore, say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith Yahweh God Are you polluted after the manner of your fathers? And commit ye whoredom after their abominations? For when you offer your gifts, when you make your sons to pass through the fire, you pollute yourselves with all your idols, even unto this day. And shall I be inquired of you, O house of Israel? As I live, saith Yahweh God, I will not be inquired of you. And therefore, most of the Israelites in their dispersion were pagan, and they were not Hebrew in their religious practice. And that which comes into your mind shall not be at all. That ye say, we will be as the heathen, as the families of the countries, to serve wood and stone. As I live, saith Yahweh God, Surely with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out will I rule over you. And this is fulfilled in Christ. And I will bring you out from the people and will gather you out of the countries wherein you are scattered with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out and I will bring you into the wilderness of the people, and there will I plead with you face to face. And this is the spread of the gospel into Europe. Like as I pled with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, saith Yahweh God, and I will cause you to pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me. And I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn. And they shall not enter into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am Yahweh. As for you, O house of Israel, thus saith Yahweh God, go ye, serve ye everyone is idols, and hereafter also, if you will not hearken unto me, but pollute ye my holy name no more with your gifts and with your idols. For in my holy mountain, in the mountain of the height of Israel, saith Yahweh God, there shall all the house of Israel, all of them in the land, serve me, there will I accept them. And there will I require your offerings and the firstfruits of your oblations with all your holy things. I will accept you with your sweet savor when I bring you out from the people and gather you out of the countries wherein you have been scattered. And I will be sanctified in you and gather you, I'm sorry, and I will be sanctified in you before the heathen. And this bringing out happened in Europe over the centuries before and after the time of Christ, through and beyond the great tribal migrations of the 5th and 6th centuries A.D. And ye shall know that I am Yahweh, when I shall bring you into the land of Israel, into the country for which I lifted up my hand to give it to your fathers. And the ultimate land of Israel is not necessarily in Palestine as the words to David in 2 Samuel 7:10 10 attest. And there shall be, shall ye remember your ways and all your doings wherein you have been defiled, and you shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for all your evils that you committed. And you shall know that I am Yahweh, When I have wrought with you for my name's sake, not according to your wicked ways, nor according to your corrupt doings, O ye house of Israel, saith Yahweh God. So according to scripture itself, the scattering of Israel among the nations happened as early as 1500 BC, up until, and was ongoing, up until the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations of Israel and Judah, approximately 741 through 585 B.C. The gathering of Israel began with the spread of the gospel message. Paul of Tarsus understood where it was that ancient Israel had been scattered, And that is the entire purpose of his ministry of reconciliation. In his ministry, Paul often compared Judeans and Greeks. But he also mentioned Galatahi, Scythians, and others of the nations where ancient Israel was scattered. But all does not always mean all in Scripture. Rather, in the context of the promises of God, terms like all men, only mean all of Israel. The anointed, which are the body of Christ, that Yahweh God is true, is the only fact which can account for the multitudes of Christians in Pontus and in Bithynia, discussed in the epistle of Pliny. All of whom he feared were willing to die for the profession of the faith, as these Corinthians, which Paul addresses here, were also withstanding such persecution in the decades preceding. The gifts among Christians of which Paul speaks here were the way in which apostate pagan Israelites were brought back to Christ, and the efficacy of the faith, is manifest in the results which it had produced. Verse 14. For also the body is not one member, meaning Christ alone, but many. It perhaps the foot may say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body. Because of this, is it not of the body? And it perhaps, the ear may say, because I am not an I, I am not of the body. Because of this, is it not of the body? Of course, you cannot, if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian Israelite, you cannot deny being a part of the body, especially because your role isn't as good as you. Want to imagine that it should be. This analogy, which Paul uses, comparing individuals of a community to the actual members of a human body, is a liter- literary device employed in similar ways centuries before Paul wrote this epistle. For instance, in Xenophon's Memorabilia, book three, paragraph 18, quoting the Loeb Classical Library edition, we read in a dialogue where two brothers are the subject of the the discussion, and Xenophon writes, Now what if a pair of hands, he said, refused the office of mutual help for which God made them, and tried to thwart each other, or if a pair of feet neglected the duty of working together for which they were fashioned and took to hampering each other. That is how you two, referring to the brothers, are behaving at present. Would it not be utterly ignorant and disastrous to use for hindrance instruments that were made for help? And moreover, a pair of brothers, in my judgment, were made by God, or as this translator has, the God, to render better service to one another than a pair of hands and feet and eyes and all the instruments that he meant to be used as partners. Somewhat more contemporary to Paul were both Livy and Cicero, who also used similar analogies. Verse 17, And that's an example that Paul indeed studied the classics and drew examples and analogies from classical Greek literature, which he did in many places. Verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where is the hearing? If the whole were hearing... Where is the sense of smell? But now Yahweh places the members, each of them, in the body, just as he wishes. But if all would be one member, where is the body? By this, Paul illustrates that not all Christians should have the same gifts, which he had mentioned in verses 7 through 10. The body in order to function, requires many different abilities. And the members of the body of Christ as a community are no different. With this comes the realization that Christians should all work together by using their individual gifts for the benefit of the body as a whole. And Paul says at verse 20, And now indeed, many are members, yet are, one body, and the eye is not able to say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. But still, much more, those members of the body imagine to be too weak are necessary, and those of the body which we imagine to be less valuable, upon these we confer more abundant dignity, that those unseemly of us have more abundant elegance, but the elegant of us have no need. And the Codex claro Montanus adds the word the words of esteem to that last verse. From the Loeb Classical Library edition of Cicero's De Officius, from Book 3, Chapter 5, Lines 21 and 22. Well then, for a man to take something from his neighbor and to profit by his neighbor's loss is more contrary to nature than is death or poverty or pain or anything else that can affect either our person or our property. For the first place, injustice is fatal to social life and fellowship between man and man. For if we are so disposed that each, to gain some personal profit, would defraud or injure his neighbor, then those bonds of human society, which are most in accord with nature's laws, must of necessity be broken. (coughs) Suppose, by way of comparison, that each one of our bodily members should conceive this idea and imagine that it could be strong and well If it should draw off to itself the health and strength of its neighboring member, the whole body would necessarily be enfeebled and die. So if each one of us should seize upon the property of his neighbors and take from each whatever he could appropriate to his own use, the bonds of human society must inevitably be annihilated. For without any conflict with nature's laws, it is granted that everybody may prefer to secure for himself rather than for his neighbor what is essential for the conduct of life. But nature's laws do forbid us to increase our means, wealth, and resources by despoiling others. So in Roman society, you really didn't care about giving anything to your neighbor, but you were morally restricted from taking anything from him. In the body of Christ, Paul takes Cicero's analogy a step further. Not only should Christians respect their lesser brethren, but they should even seek to magnify their lesser brethren, giving esteem to all Of the members regardless of one's own position. The eye and the hand and the foot may be more important parts than others, but nevertheless they should each recognize that all parts are necessary and All should therefore be of equal esteem. Yet giving our lesser brethren even more abundant dignity, we show our esteem for Christ and ensure that the least of our brethren are never despised. Rather, back to Paul, verse 24, Yahweh has tempered the body together, giving more abundant esteem to that which is wanting in order that there would not be division in the body, but the members would have the same concern for one another. And if one member is affected, all the members are affected together. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice together. Now that verb, pasco, affected, It's usually to suffer in the King James Version. But the word can mean to suffer good or bad. To receive an impression from outside is what it really means. To receive an impression from without or to suffer. The word may be used to describe the reception of good impressions as well as bad. And the lexicon offers the example found in the phrase, you pesking, which accordingly means to be well off, to suffer good. Because the word suffer in today's English is usually only associated with something negative, with ill. Here the word is translated as affected. Verse 27, so then you are an anointed body, or a body of Christ, and members by destiny. Yahweh has placed each one of us in the body. If we're in the body, we're members by destiny. The phrase, the Greek phrase translated by destiny here is ek meros, It appears here, and it appears three times in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where in the Christianity New Testament, it is by destiny on all four occasions. The word ek means from, or by, or of, and Meros, Strong 33, 13, is a part, a share, one's portion, one's heritage, one's lot, the part one takes, the part assigned, according to Liddell and Scott. Or as Joseph Thayer describes Meros, it's a part, a part due or assigned to one, lot or destiny. So the words by destiny here in the Christianity and New Testament, may just as well have been written by heritage. The children of Israel are indeed members of the body of Christ by their heritage. According to the and Scott, in other grammatical cases and in the appropriate contexts, the phrase en merai, the dative case, of this word, meros, was used by Herodotus and others to denote the phrase, in turn. And meros, key, is partly, or to some degree, to some part. And that's fine. In 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, it is translated here in that way because the context was appropriate to that meaning. Thayer's lexicon has, in part, for this phrase here, ekmeros, but he only cites these New Testament verses as his authorities and no other Greek references in order to make his point. And I must conjecture that Thayer's definition is based upon theological reasons and not on Greek grammar. Ekmeros means from heritage, by heritage, by destiny, from destiny. Here, our interpretation of the phrase is wholly within the context of Paul's other statements, especially concerning 1 Corinthians 12, 18, where he wrote, But now Yahweh places the members, each one of them in the body, just as he wishes. This interpretation is also supported by other statements which Paul had made elsewhere, such as in Romans chapter 8, where he wrote, Because those whom he has known beforehand, speaking of God, he has also appointed beforehand, conformed to the image of his Son, for him to be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, those whom he has appointed beforehand, these he also calls, and those whom he calls, these he also deems worthy, while those whom he deems worthy, these he also honors. The members of the body of Christ are members by heritage, by destiny, and because Christ honors them, they should also honor one another. At the close of our presentation of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we said that Paul is about to address the Corinthians who ate and drank at the assemblies to the disgrace of those of their less fortunate brethren who had to do without. Well, Paul is indeed about to do that, and in fact, he has already begun doing that. But we did not quite reach the point where we may describe it fully. With all certainty, Yahweh willing, we will reach that point when we proceed with the next presentation of this epistle. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thank you for listening, and good night. I will be here tomorrow, Martin Luther, part 21, believe it or not.